Let me pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We trust that what your word says is true, that every morning you give us new mercy, and we know how much we need your mercy. Would you be merciful to us in this class? Help us to understand you, God, our creator and our redeemer. Help us to know you as you have revealed yourself in your word. Help us to think clearly and faithfully about you and let everything else in our life be changed accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Doctrine of God course, it occurred to me yesterday, maybe that language, the Doctrine of God, is not super familiar to everyone. Um, by the Doctrine of God, I do not mean everything that God says in the Bible, like the teaching of God, God's teaching. What I mean more narrowly is what God says in the Bible about himself. It's the teaching of God about God, <laughs> the Doctrine of God. That's what it's typically meant, too, in theology. And this course is 15 weeks Uh, We already have done two weeks. In the first week, we picked up the knowledge of God and the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, which if you were there, you remember the main point was, though we can never comprehend God, that is, know him exhaustively or as he knows himself, he has made himself known to us, according to his word. Uh, That was the first week. The second week, we picked up the existence of God. Chris taught last week and gave us some demonstrations of the truth that God exists. This week, we start kind of the main section of this whole class, which is on the divine attributes. What is God like? And this is going to be about 10 weeks, I think. Today, we're going to do an introduction to divine attributes. So this is going to be more abstract. I apologize in advance. In future weeks, we will focus in on one attribute or a couple that makes sense to go together. And we'll think a lot about if God is like this, what does that mean for us? on that specific attribute. That'll be easier to do as we kind of narrow down and isolate specific attributes, right? It's going to be harder to do this week. But I'll still try to say some things by way of application this week as we introduce the divine attributes. I do want to say, in case it's not been clear in the last two weeks, there's one strong, implicit application to this whole class. So if you never hear anyone say this explicitly, just assume that this is always true, no matter what week we're on. When you get a good glimpse of God, everything else about your life is going to change. And that's what we're trying to do this semester, this fall. We're just trying to get a good glimpse of God. It's okay with me if all we do is try to understand God rightly, the way he wants us to understand him. And then I trust that by God's grace, other things about us are going to change. Because that's what happens when you behold God. You become like him. So it's okay with me if all we do is behold God, worship God, praise God, try to talk about God rightly, try to think about God rightly, and then our prayer life changes, or our worship life as a church together changes. I just expect those things to happen. That seems to kind of be the biblical way that things go. You become like what you behold. So we just want to behold God in this whole class. That's what we're trying to do. Today, we're introducing attributes. I'll say more about what attributes are in just a moment. Um, But you'll see the main idea at the top of your handout. When considering God's attributes, we distinguish to understand and we understand to praise. When considering God's attributes, what God is like, we distinguish to understand and we understand to praise. We'll say more about this next week when we pick up simplicity. 
That's next week. But just to kind of give us a part one, part two, kind of to prime the pump for what we're going to do next week, uh, which itself will be challenging. We want to recognize that because God is God, we can't fit all of them into our mind at the same time or period. So we have to kind of isolate specific elements of what it means for God to be God so that we can understand what he's like, something of what he's like. So we're creatures, as I said in week one, we're finite and we can't contain the infinite God. So we isolate specific attributes of God to try and understand something of what God is like. And if we think about one thing at a time, we'll actually gain some understanding because God's revealed himself. When we gain that understanding, we then can praise God, worship him for what he's like. And I'll say more about each of those things. But that's kind of what, uh, what we're trying to do this morning. I'm going to do it in, in uh, three steps. They're on the handout. We're going to try to describe God. Um, and we're going to see especially the way the Bible describes God in these first three passages, Exodus 3, Psalm 145, and 1 Peter 2. Then I want to say a word about understanding those descriptions. There's right and wrong ways to understand the way the Bible speaks about God and the way we ought to speak about God. And then I want to look at kind of the way descriptions of God have been classified into two um, groups. And you maybe have heard this before, incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Go ahead and raise your hand if you've heard that before. Okay, great. It's a very popular way of speaking. If you haven't, it's a good thing you're here. We're going to talk about it. So praise the Lord. Um, Yeah, so I want to look at the Bible's descriptions of God. I want to look at how the Bible would have us understand those descriptions. That's part two. And then I want to talk about how theologians in the past, Christians in the past, have classified those sorts of descriptions, okay? Any questions before we jump into to point one? Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus 3. Everybody turn to Exodus 3. We didn't camp out here in week one. It's a good thing to camp out here at some point in our Doctrine of God class. This is as good a time as any. So Exodus 3, and Lyle's going to start reading in verse 13 in just a second. Uh, you might remember kind of what's happening in Exodus at this point. God has grown the nation of Israel to a large nation. The family of Abraham has become lots and lots and lots of families, even a great nation. I think there's two million at the beginning of Exodus. But they're in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, and he's a horrible, horrible man. Uh, and he's putting them through the worst sorts of slavery. And God hears their cries And he says he's going to deliver them. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. So what's interesting in this episode that Lyle's about to read is that God is having some sort of interaction with Moses. They're speaking to each other. And there's a bush that's burning, but it's not burned up. And God is speaking from the bush to Moses. And Moses says, okay, great. You're going to deliver us. But who do I say is going to deliver us? (laughs) Like, who do I tell them you are? And that's the interaction we're about to hear. So God is about to name himself. That's why it's significant. Lyle. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Amen. Thank you. So God has just named himself. He said, when you go to tell Pharaoh 
that I'm delivering the people of Israel. When you go to tell the Israelites that I'm going to deliver you, who should you say that I am? I am. (laughs) I am who I am. Say that I am sent you. Now, I just want to ask you, and it's okay if you've already heard this. You can say the best Bible teaching you've heard in the past. That's great, too. That'll help us. But if you've never thought about it before, especially, what does that mean about who God is? What does it mean that God names himself, I am who I am? Give me some answers. What do you think? He's self-existent. Okay, he's self-existent. So he has existence from himself. He's not created by someone else. Go ahead. He's self-defined and he's the only one who can define himself. Yeah, that's the one that jumped out to me, actually, as I was looking at it this weekend. I am who I am, not who you say I am. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of the right of self-definition. God has, even more so than we might say we have. What else? I am who I am, or I am. There's one other thing I want us to make sure we see. Maybe two more. Any other ideas about what that has to mean about who God is? His yeah, I think so. Not just that he has existence from himself, but that he's always existed. He's the I am. He's not the I will be or the I was without qualification. He's the I am. And he's always been the I am. So he is, we could say. And he always has been. One other thing. Anything else you notice that I am must mean? Jocelyn? He's a personal God. He, he's Very true. A person, not a thing or just a... Very yeah. true. Yeah, this is not Star Wars the Force. It is not an impersonal, abstract entity. This is a personal God. Someone who can say I. The Force can't say I. Something else? One more thing. All right, I'll tell you. I think it speaks to the fact that God never changes. Not only is God I am, but he's always I am. I think that's what it has to mean for God to say, I am who I am. And I think it's all the things we've said, and probably more. You could think about that for a while, and I'm sure you wouldn't exhaust the name of God. But at least he exists from himself. No one made him. He defines himself. No one else says who he is. Um, He's always been, and he always will be, and he never changes. Now, you might think that's a lot to read into, I am who I am. And I would just say the rest of the Bible unpacks all of those things very clearly in lots of places. So even if that doesn't convince you from Exodus 3, just think about, I, the Lord, do not change, right, from Malachi or Numbers, Right? Just think about, uh, we'll look at Revelation here in a second, that God is the one who was and who is and who is to come, that he always is, right? Okay, let's hear Psalm 145. Psalm 145. You can just listen to this one if you don't want to turn there. Yep. Pause right there. Sorry. So this is the Bible's description of a believer in God praising God, which is what we're trying to do in this class. We're trying to say who God is, what he's like, according to how he's revealed himself. So it'd be helpful to look at a biblical example of someone doing just that. Now notice all the sorts of things he says. Keep going. Verse four. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. 
On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Pause right there. Verses 4 to 7 talk about God's transcendent otherness, his holiness, how great he is. Remember, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Now we're unpacking that greatness. Keep going in verse 8. Notice what happens. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So the great transcendent God now comes near to creation. He's nearer to you than the person sitting next to you. As transcendent and great as he is, he's also just as near. Keep going. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power (coughs) to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Thank you, Laura. I heard two reasons why God is praised there. Can you give me one of them? Two big categorical reasons why God is praised. Because of what he's done and because of who he is. That's exactly right. So the psalmist praises God for who he is and for what he's done. Now, just from what you heard Laura read, you don't have to go back and look at it if you don't want to. You can. It's a little cheat sheet. Give me some, uh, give me some words you heard about who God is and what he's done. Just words from the Bible that you heard. Glorious. He's glorious. Shout them out. He's faithful. Righteous. He's righteous. Gracious. He's gracious. Merciful. He's merciful. Compassionate. Compassionate. Say it again. A friend. A friend. Keep going. Good. He preserves. He preserves. Yep. Great. He's great. Yep. He's just. He's just. These are all from this one psalm. Isn't that incredible? He's kind, he's near, he gives, he satisfies. What are these things? I told you on the handout, they're descriptions of God, but we could use the word attribute. Some of these things are attributes of God, okay? What is an attribute? It's an essential property of God. It means if you take this thing away, you don't have God anymore. Okay? An attribute of God is that without which he would not be God. Now, there are some things in the passage that we just heard 
that we can quickly move from the language of the Bible to an attribute of God. Righteousness, for example, right? Graciousness, for example, right? There are other things that we want to put rest, the rest of the Bible together and do a little bit of work to get to a kind of systematic account of everything the Bible says about who God is and what he's like. That's what we're going to try to do in this class. So you'll notice at the bottom of your handout, I've listed the incommunicable and communicable attributes uh, that we're going to cover in this class. It's not everything we could say, but it is what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks. I've combined things that are similar enough that we can consider them together. Okay? So if we were to use the language of this psalm, we might consider kindness, compassion, merciful, all in the same week as one attribute. You see that under goodness, love, mercy, and grace. Okay? We're going to try and tackle those together. Same thing with justice and righteousness. We're going to throw in holiness, right? Because these are similar enough. If we wanted to just look at every single one of those words, we would just run out of time. So we're going to try and put everything the Bible says together and look at each sort of attribute, if you will, uh, in one week. Flip over to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Anybody go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter 2. You hit Revelation, you went too far. First Peter 2, I just want to say for a second about why we, ought, why we ought to do something like this. Why bother with attributes of God? Um, why take the time to try and summarize and synthesize and systematically address the attributes of God in a class like this one or in your own private individual Christian life. I think 1 Peter 2 gives us an answer from the Bible. Go ahead and read that. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So why bother with the attributes of God? From Peter. So we can tell other people So we can tell other people what he's like, and why should we do that? From from Peter. Because he saved us for this purpose. Why did God save us? Peter says, so you could proclaim his excellencies. And excellencies is just another word for attributes. So perfections is another word for attributes. We could call this next 10 weeks the perfections of God. The excellencies of God. The attributes of God. Those are all those, all those words are doing the same work in, in the sentence, right? They're synonyms. God saved us that we might make him known, his glory known, his excellencies known and proclaimed. Any questions about any of that first point before we move on to the second one? Or comments that you think would be edifying for other people here? Any questions? Yeah. Is that the only reason he saved us? Mm. The primary reason he saved us? Great question. Uh, I didn't mean to answer that question. <laughs> Um, can you think of another reason why God saved us? So I'm not meaning to say this is the only or this is the most important. I'm just meaning to say from 1 Peter 2, what I see is he saved us so that we proclaim his excellencies.
Okay, if you can come up with other reasons from the Bible, those are, those are great. I don't mean to say they're not good or not true. You're gonna, and, and I appreciate the question. You're going to notice, especially when we get to Revelation 4, there's a lot of things we could say from Revelation 4. <laughs> and there will be a lot of questions you have about, what is this four living creatures thing? And I'm just going to say, that's not what we're here for. <laughs> if you want to know more about that, go listen to Garrett's sermon on Revelation 4. <laughs> so there's a sense in which uh, we're trying to grab one thing from the passage or two things from the passage relevant to the subject we're talking about today. And there's lots of other wonderful things we could talk about. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, there's just never enough time to get to, to everything. Great question. Any other questions or comments? Sometimes there's not enough time to get to the things I planned to cover. <laughs> okay, descriptions of God uh, in the Bible. I want you to see how these excellencies, perfections, and attributes are tied to something specific that God does. Revelation 4. Uh, go ahead and turn there. It'll be helpful if you're looking at this one. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Whoever said they would read that? Yeah. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Pause. John, who wrote this, I know. John, who wrote this, has been called up to heaven to see what the heavenly throne room looks like. Okay, and he's going to look at what creatures do with God. Go ahead. And the first voice, which I heard, had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four little creatures, full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say... Pause right there. We'll hear what they say in just a second. What did you notice about the first eight verses that Mike read? Who's on the throne? Who's seated on the throne? God. Yep. What did you notice about John's descriptions of God? Do you see a word that shows up a bunch there? Or a kind of idea? Uh, I heard appearance, which is the one I was looking for. I didn't hear the other word. Appearance of. What about look down in verses six through eight? Do you see what word shows up there a lot? Like. Like. It's exactly right. So like the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, right? And he, I know he's describing the creatures in verses six through eight. But do you just notice how words are failing John? <laughs> he has to take recourse to, I've seen this thing and it's kind of like that. 
I'm not sure how to characterize exactly what this is, but it's a little bit like this. And you can imagine, right, what's true of Jasper and Carnelian. These are precious stones that are gorgeous to look at. Same with a rainbow, right? So there is some comparison that's legitimate between God and the thing that John is describing, okay? John has no pretense whatsoever that what, by saying Jasper and Carnelian, he's captured everything there is to say about what God is like or what it is to look at God. He actually presupposes the opposite. It's like, I'm going to just have to do the best I can. <laughs> uh, it's a lot like how beautiful precious gems are. We're going to see this theme again and again in the passages on your handout, Isaiah 46 and Acts 17. But I just want to call your attention to the word like and the idea of like, because it's a biblical idea. There's a sense in which our words are just going to fail us. So we're going to do the best we can. Now, by God's grace, we're not left to just our own words and wisdom. It's not like we just have to come up with these things. God has revealed himself with words that are adequate and proper to explain what he's like Okay, in his word. So we're going to take recourse to the scriptures. But even there, we're going to have trouble like understanding what is this God like? Why is that? Keep going, Mike. They Verse 8. Yeah, go ahead. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Pause right there. Let's just talk about this for a second. Notice what these creatures are doing. They're praising God for who he is and what he's done. Okay. We're going to get to what he's done in verse 11. Let's just think about who he is for a second. From Revelation 4, verse 8, and this line of praise that it says they repeat all the time, day and night. They never stop saying it. What do you notice is the first word of that description? What is God like? He's holy. And he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. So if the word holy, which is difficult to define, is other, different, it's not just that God is different, it's that he's wholly different. In fact, he's holy, 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 different. Like this is, maybe you've heard this before, this is true. In Hebrew, they don't have word processors that do bold and italics and underline, so they repeat words to convey emphasis. Okay, And when you repeat something three times, it's like the superlative degree. It's the most emphasis you can give something. So God is not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. He's different, differently, if we wanted to put it provocatively. He's not just different like my wife and I are different from each other. He's more different even than that. Because he's holy, holy, holy. And then I told you we would get here. He's also the one who was and is and is to come. He's always been and always will be. And he does not change. Keep going in verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives Right here, they're about to tell us what it looks like to give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne. That's what verse 9 says. How do they do it? Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and 
by your will they existed and were created. Why is God worthy? Verse 11. Look at the word for. He's the creator. The scripture, and this isn't the only place where this happens, but it's a really clear one, so we camped out here. The scripture roots God's worthiness to receive praise in what? Lord just said it. Creation. Yeah, I heard someone say it. He's the creator. He's the creator God. He's made everything. And that's really clear. For you created all things. What does that mean? That God himself is not created. And that everything else is. This is the difference between God and everything else. All things are created, but God. God is not a created thing. You might remember from week one, this is a very helpful diagram. There's God and there's creation. And there's no overlap. It's a very helpful diagram. Sometimes the most simple ones are. There's God and there's creation. And there's no overlap, no confusion at any point. So there's the one who's worthy of glory and honor and power and there's everything else because he made all these things for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created everything else came into existence not god i want to say a word about that phrase worthy are you i think it gives us kind of a a helpful theme to root some of the things we're going to say in this class uh, in the coming weeks and today that there are ways we ought to speak about God and think about God that are worthy of him. And there are ways we could think and speak about God that are unworthy of him. Because God is the creator, we ought to speak in a worthy manner about him. The best way to do that is to use the words he's used (laughs) to reveal himself to us in the scriptures, right? Now, we're going to use words that aren't in the scriptures to try and summarize carefully and clearly what the scriptures say. And anytime we do that, anytime we take that step away from biblical language and ideas to our own language and ideas, we just need to be careful that we're always speaking in a manner that's worthy of God, the creator. That's what I want us to see from Revelation 4. Worthy are you, right? Because you created all things. There's ways that are unfitting and unworthy to speak about God, and we should avoid them. We should only speak in a way that fits God, the creator. If you want a principle, uh, you could write down the God-fittingness principle. That's what I'm trying to unpack. A nice, clunky word. God-fittingness. We want to speak in ways that fit God. We want to speak in ways that are worthy of God. Okay, now I want to hear Isaiah 46. I'll pause in a minute to take questions. If you have one burning in your mind, you might write it down so you don't forget. Isaiah 46, whoever said they would read that, go ahead. Pause right there. She's in Isaiah 46. She just read verses 3 and 4. What's happening in Isaiah 46 is the trial of the false gods. Isaiah the prophet 
in 41-ish to 49-ish is basically saying the one true and living God of the Bible is unlike all the idols for this reason and this reason and that reason and that reason. And he's giving you lots of reasons why you should only worship the one true and living God. Idols can't tell, the, tell you the future. Idols don't make anything. Idols change, right? So we just touched down in the middle of that. But I want us to notice something specific. Keep going. Verse 5, Isaiah 46. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. How is God not like the idols? He accomplishes his will infallibly. Every single time God accomplishes his purposes. Idols can't do that. There's a lot of reasons why um, God is greater than idols, why idols are not gods. In this passage, what I want us to notice is in verse 5. Is, that's where it starts. Remember that phrase, that word like, and the idea which we said it tra- we're trying to capture with it. God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And notice the way the word like is functioning here. It's like, <laughs> it's like there's nothing we can grab onto and exhaust the meaning of what it means for God to be God. That's what he means. There's nothing that compares to me totally, exhaustively. Okay? He doesn't mean you can't liken things in any sense. He couldn't mean that. Because the Bible all over the place likens things to God. If you remember in week one, we talked about how God is like a shepherd who cares for his flock. And we talked about how that analogy is limited. It conveys true things about God but it doesn't convey everything about God. And you have to do that move every time (laughs) because there's nothing you can compare to God, not exhaustively at least, which is true because of what it says in verse nine, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is no one like God. There is no one greater than God. God is the greatest of all beings. So this word like, I want to give you a theological word for it, and it's the word analogy. Analogy, this would be a good thing to write down. I want to set analogy over and against two alternatives. By analogy, I don't mean an illustration or a metaphor. I mean something more theological. This is a way theologians have spoken about Language as it relates to God, and they set it over and against. I'm going to give you two big words, but I'll tell you what they mean. Univocal and equivocal. Okay? 
univocal uh, unit vocal one voice, which means, and this is the word you can write down and remember if you want, same. So if I use language about God and I use language about us creatures, it has to have the same meaning exhaustively. But we just saw from Isaiah 46, that's not the case. Because God is holy, holy, holy. There's no one like him. You can't compare God in an exhaustive total sense to anything in creation. You can't speak univocally or the same. Equivocal, you can tell the, the word root, has to do with total difference. Right? So if univocally speaking is to say something the same in every sense, equivocally speaking is to say something different in every sense. We want to speak analogously instead, which I'll use the word like for. So there's a sense in which when we, t- when we speak about God and we say something about God, which is true of creation, he's like a shepherd. We need to realize we're speaking with that word like, with that idea of analogy. It's not the same, and it's not different. It's a third opposite, which is why I made it a triangle. So there's a sense in which God is like this and not like this. Any description of God that you read in the scriptures, again, we'll use the example I've been using, he's like a shepherd who tends his flock. You need to be able to both affirm and deny that. This is counterintuitive, and I realize that. Remember, we're speaking about God here. makes sense that it's going to be a little bit difficult for us to grab onto intellectually. You need to be able to affirm and deny the metaphor. Why? Because there's some things that are true of shepherds that are not true of God. Remember from week one, shepherds sleep. They get tired. They have to rest. They get knocked out by diseases like I did recently. And they have to sleep all day so that they can recover. You can tell I'm recovering from a cold. Not so with God. So God is like a shepherd and then he cares for his people. But he's better than a shepherd because he never sleeps or slumbers. Right? You want to be able to say both and you have to be able to say both. It's neither the same entirely or different entirely. Our language connects to some true reality of what it means for God to be God in a limited human creaturely way. Let me pause there because I've done a lot. I saw one question in the back. You answered it. Oh, great. I was going to ask um, how, in what way is, do we need to use analogy versus a metaphor or an illustration? But you explained that the metaphor or the illustration will fall short um, where the Lord doesn't. Yeah, we're just, use, we're just recognizing our own human limitations here. That we're speaking not about created things. We're speaking about the creator of everything. And so we want to speak in a way that's worthy of him. The way we do that is we use analogy, right? So we recognize what's true in what's being said and what's not true in what's being said, right? You'll notice when the scriptures speak like this, like they use the metaphor of a shepherd, what's being compared of God is exceedingly narrow, right? And this is why, because the metaphor is going to break down at some point. God doesn't sleep. I'm just using one example, so I hope it's clear. You could do this with other things. Um, God is like a rock, let's say. The Bible says that. Well, he's not like a rock in the sense that he's inert, that he never does anything. He's like a rock in that he's stable. You can trust him. You could build your whole life upon him because he's a steady anchor, a foundation, right? 
One in whom you can put your trust and certainty. That's what it means for God to be like a rock. Right? Uh, Micah? When I think about this topic and like the limits of our understanding, I think of like Psalm 131. Mm. My eyes are not lifted up. Mm. I consider great marvelous things, you know, mm. everything. Just curious how you think about that concept as it relates to this topic, right? Like, how do we know when we kind of cross the divide to yeah. things that we don't know about God and have not been revealed to us and are yep. probably left to Him and not to yep. us? Great question. Um, I'll say three things. One, read all of the Bible a lot and let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's your safe harbor. We're not left to our own thoughts for something like this. Difficult as it may seem to us, God has spoken with clarity about what he's like. We just want to put all of the Bible together and try to understand God as he's revealed himself. So take harbor in the language of Scripture, in the ideas of Scripture, in the categories of Scripture. There you're safe. You can say about God what God has said about God. And you can know that you're saying something true, meaningful, actual as it relates to God. Right? That's one. Two, read the Bible with other people. So there are people who have come before us. Um, Yeah, Christianity did not start with us or our parents, or Billy Graham. Spoiler alert. There have been Christians for hundreds, even thousands of years who have read the Bible and tried to understand these difficult things. And some of them are very helpful. Some of them are very unhelpful. (laughs) And that's why the first thing I said is the first thing I said. Read the Bible. Also, read people who are faithful and helpful in trying to explain the meaning of the Bible. It's why we have pastors. It's why we have a church. It's why we have people who have followed Jesus in the faith centuries before us, right? They'll help us to understand. Always check what they say according to the Bible. And then the third thing I'd say is, in terms of when we cross the Rubicon, I think, as I said in week one, this, this kind of incomprehensibility in particular, the fact that we can never comprehend God, can never say everything there is to say, can never understand God in the way God understands God, it should humble us. We should be tentative in what we say about God, right? When we speak about something like this, or the subject of this lesson, or the subject of this class, we should just humbly recognize we're still finite. Worse than that, we're fallen. We're sinners, and it makes it really difficult to think well when you sin, right? And so we, we want to have a kind of humility which says, yeah, where, where Scripture speaks, we should speak with confidence, clarity, certainty. Where Scripture stops speaking, we should stop speaking. We should only go as far as God has gone in his word, okay? And that's a biblical category. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children that we may be careful to do them all, right? So camp out on the revealed things. That's why the text of scripture is driving the content of this class and stop short of the secret things. That'd be my answer. Laura? I think I understand what you're saying when you you talk about analogy and Yeah. To say so, to speak about something equivocally means that there's total difference. There's no overlap at all in terms of meaning. What that's going to do, though, is it's going to make us totally mute. We're not going to be able to say anything about God. Any language that we use wouldn't actually connect truthfully to something about God. You realize how devastating that would be, 
to Christianity. We can't go that direction. People don't tend to go this direction. People tend to go this direction if they're going to err, right? We just want to avoid both. C.S. Lewis said, the devil sends out errors into the world in pairs, hoping that you'll reject the one and embrace the other, right? Again, that's why I made it a triangle. Avoid both errors. One might look more interesting to you. I would just say, take refuge in the language of scripture and, and realize that we're speaking about our creator as creatures, okay? Uh, let me keep going because I think some of that will maybe become more clear in point three. Um, <clears throat> as we're coming to a close of point two, understanding descriptions of God. Um, one writer said that we speak analogously because some resemblance and shadow of God's own perfections is present in creatures. I think that's helpful. The metaphor of shadow. There's some resemblance and shadow of God's own perfections present in creatures, right? Um, Jesus speaks about this, right? If you're an evil person, a sinner, and yet you, as a father or a parent, do good things to your children, how much more God who has no sin, right? See how the shadow of God's perfection, goodness, is present to the extreme in God and present in some kind of resemblance and shadow in us right? We recognize goodness because we do good things on occasion. Not that earnest salvation, not even interacting with that, right? But in some sense, we realize it's a good thing for a parent to care for a child. How much more good is it when God does that? He never errs, never fails, right? So there's a shadow of God's perfection present in creatures. Uh, let's move to point three, just for the sake of time. Classifying descriptions of God. Um, and you probably have noticed at this point that word descriptions is really just a synonym for the word attributes. I don't know why I didn't just say attributes. Forgive me. Um, there's been a lot of ways of classifying the attributes of God, of grouping them into categories. This one is probably the most uh, prominent one. This incommunicable and communicable way of speaking. You'll, if you go read theology books, you'll find others. I'm not really trying to comment on which ones are good or bad right now. I'm just saying this is the one we're going to use. It's the most traditional, and it hits on something really important, I think. So I want to bring that out today before we dive into each of the attributes. You'll notice I led with incommunicable attributes, and I did that on purpose. Um, Incommunicable versus communicable is trying to convey that there's a sense in which God's perfections are present in creatures in a limited sense. Not so with the incommunicable attributes. Okay? The communicable attributes are communicated to creatures. The incommunicable ones are not. So you remember I just used that example of goodness. Goodness is a communicable attribute. It's present in God perfectly. It's present in creatures imperfectly. Not so with simplicity, infinity, eternity and immensity, immutability and impassibility, aseity and independence. Pro tip, if you write it down, you can say it really fast. <laughs> Those are on your handout. Um, the thing to point out here is that incommunicable attributes are negative attributes. Now, by that, I don't mean that they're bad and that the communicable ones are, are good. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that incommunicable attributes of God remove some creaturely limitation from God. Okay? I'll give you some examples. We're going to spend a week on each of these ten things. Okay? So if you don't 
get it. Like, feel free to come talk to me afterwards or come back for that week, right? Simplicity is not dealing with the idea that God is simple and not complex. It's not that he's easy to understand versus difficult. It's dealing with he's simple and not composite. He's not composed of parts. You and I are composed of parts. And we generally think that more parts equals more power. Compare my child's little pink car that I push her in with my wife's Toyota Highlander. More parts equals more power. Not so with God. God is not composed of parts. He's simple. See how we took a creaturely reality, the cars, which have parts, and we negated the creaturely limitation, and we speak about God. He's not composed of parts. Right? That's why it's a negative attribute. Again, if simplicity confuses you, come back next week. Next week is on simplicity. Infinity. Infinity is just saying that God is not finite. That's what the prefix in means. It's a negation. He's not finite, right? Infinity applied to time is eternity. That God has no beginning and no end and no succession of moments. He's eternal. That's what it means for God to be eternal. We're in time. We have a beginning. We have an end. We have a succession of moments. Immensity is infinity applied to space. That God is not bound by space like we are. We take up one space in time. God fills all of time. You see how I'm just removing creaturely limitations? These are just by way of example. Immutability is saying that God's not mutable, which just means he doesn't change. We change, mercifully so. I'm a sinner, right? As God removes sin from me, I mercifully become more like Jesus. God has no sin and never changes. He's always perfect. Uh, we'll come back to the rest of those. But you kind of get my idea. The incommunicable ones are negative. We don't share these with God. Only God is like this. There's no one like him, right? So when we speak about incommunicable attributes, we're negating whatever the creaturely limitation is. Okay, now communicable attributes, the second classification, are positive in the sense that we're saying something positively. God is like this, as opposed to he's not like this. You see the difference between positive and negative? But notice with the communicable attributes, God is like these things in a way that's greater and original to him. God is these things in a way that is greater and original to him. So when we ascribe causation to God, that he is goodness, that everything else is good only by way of deriving goodness from God, we're speaking in communicable terms. I do good things. I am not myself good. God is good. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. By which I think he was saying, I'm God. (laughs) But it's interesting, isn't it, that he says no one is good but God. No one is good but God. Right? In terms of attributes, we can say God is good, and we could say that I have good sometimes. Not much, but sometimes. So we ascribe the greatness, the greatest degree, and the original degree to God when we talk about his communicable attributes. He is truth, justice, holiness, goodness, and so on and so forth down the list. Okay? Um, I was reading one of my 
multi-volume dogmatics text in preparation for this class, and I found this little phrase really helpful from Petrus Van Maastricht, who's great. This hodgepodge of attributes, I love that he calls it a hodgepodge, this hodgepodge of attributes arises not so much from God's perfection as from our imperfection. This hodgepodge of attributes, you're looking at it and you're thinking, I'm not even sure what some of these words mean. It's okay, keep coming. This hodgepodge of attributes arises not so much from God's perfection, but from our imperfection, which brings us back to where we started. When considering God's attributes, we distinguish to understand, and we understand to praise. Right? We can't, in any moment, speak about all ten of these things. In the most important and ultimate sense, there's really only one divine attribute, godness. And we're just isolating aspects of what it means for God to be God when we look at each of these 10 things and we look at others. The reason we do that is because we can't fit God in our mind. We can't understand everything it means for God to be God. So we isolate one thing and try to understand that one thing. Right? This is just part of the two circles, the creator-creature distinction. We're talking about God. Remember week one, we're speaking about God. If you comprehend, it's not God we're speaking about, right? Um, Let me say one word about that word praise. I'll pause and take questions. I'll pray and we can go to church. Sound good? Um, When I say when considering God's attributes, we distinguish to understand. That's kind of the whole lesson. And we understand to praise. Now, each week in the next 10, I think it is, we're going to look at an attribute of God. We're going to ask the question, what should I do with this? And a big part of the class is going to be application. I started this class with application. I'm going to end this class briefly with application. Every one of the coming classes is going to spend more time on it because, again, we're going to isolate down one attribute, one perfection, one element of what it means for God to be God. I think you can always hear three things when you hear that word praise. Faith, adoration, and imitation. I get this from Joel Beakey. Faith adoration and imitation. So when we try to understand what God is like, we're looking to believe in him, to trust him with everything we have and everything we are. We're looking to adore him, to recognize how great and greatly to be praised he is. And we're looking to imitate him. And we don't imitate God in every sense. There are good ways to imitate God and bad ways to imitate God. One book on pastoring I read recently says, your problem is not that you're, om- that you're not omnipresent. Your problem is not that you're not omnipresent. It's that you try to be. That's why we need to repent, because we try to be God in ways that we're not supposed to be God. Right? Now, we don't do the same with goodness or truth or justice. Right? And this is why we, we're doing this in incommunicable, communicable. There's ways we are to imitate God, and there's ways we're not to imitate God. Okay? Any questions or comments on any of that before I pray? We have time for at least one. I I mean, I would probably save it for when you deep dive these, but just, it'd be interesting to know if there's even any tiny aspect of those. I mean, I I guess you're saying there's not of the incommunicable. Mm. Mm, yeah. But there's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, I guess we'll get there. But. We will get there. Um, I'd be interested to know what you're like. We could talk through some specific ideas. 
Um, I don't think so. Yeah. I think the communicable ones are present by way of a shadow, right? That's why I think that analogy is helpful. Um, the incommunicable ones are not. And I would just expect that. When we're speaking about God, there's a sense in which he's transcendently other. So there's going to be lots of senses in which he's nothing like us. Even though he's made us like him, there's going to be lots of senses in which he's nothing like us. Right? Maybe a follow-up would be, you know, when we get to heaven someday, we would experience some of these things, like infinity, maybe? I don't think so. It's a good question. Infinity has to do with, that's kind of... Or maybe eternity. Well, so even eternity, right? I think in heaven, we'll still have had a beginning. Uh, God won't. We'll still experience a succession of moments. God won't, right? And that's kind of what I'm meaning by incommunicable. That's a great example. Thank you for saying that. Um, Let me pray because we got to go to church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us that we might understand and praise you. Would you help us by grace to do it? Help us to trust the Lord Jesus with those things which are too great and too marvelous for us. And there are many. Help us to trust you because you're ever faithful, ever true, ever good. Good even in the ultimate sense. Would you cause everything I've said to either be true or forgotten? Might you help us, Lord, as we gather together as a church in a moment to sing your praises, to pray and ask for your forgiveness and your help and to hear your word preached, to instruct us on how we ought to live, how we ought to believe, how we ought to hope and fear and desire. Would you correct us? Would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.